Amen. Great singing, everyone. Welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. So glad that you're here, and I see a lot of fresh new faces with us this morning, so a special welcome to you as well. I don't know what you are nervous about or excited about going into this week, but I know that some folks over here are going to give birth to twins on Wednesdays, or actually just one person is going to give birth <laughs> to twins, but... Uh, John and Wendy, uh, will you guys stand up? We just want to, don't make her stand. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> Golly. Uh, no doubt they're going to need some meals. Is Nicole, Donna, Nicole Nicholson in here? Nicole, stand up. Uh, Nicole's organizing some meals for them. No doubt they're going to need some, uh, some food as well as maybe if you want to go over there and clean some bottles, uh, vacuum the carpet, whatever. They're going to need our support and our help. Um, for the next few weeks. John travels internationally uh, with a mission that we uh, partner with, and uh, if he thinks that's hard, <laughs> he's getting ready to have twins. So uh, anyway, love you guys. Uh, be praying for them Wednesday, right? When March 1 is the day. So uh, the rest of you, a little family business here. Uh, guests, just listen in if you like, but a little family business here. Two weeks ago, we had a family meeting where we talked about our vision for 2017, and this morning I get to announce to you that uh, those of you that voted, the, the budget passed overwhelmingly. We only had uh, one or two grumpy pants that voted against it. Just kidding. I think it was unanimous, actually. But anyway, the vote passed uh, for our budget. Appreciate those of you that made commitments. Just want to uh, say this, remind you, uh, what wasn't in that budget was a uh, little renovation in here that was kind of our summer challenge. So if you give uh, early and often as we get to the summer, if we're ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 ahead, we're going to do about $30,000 of renovations in here uh, just to bring it out of uh, 1991 a little bit. Um, so that's the challenge, uh, but we wanted to prioritize some other things in the main budget. We still would like to hear as one of our 17 goals, goal number 17 was actually to have 100% participation from those who are members here, those that consider this your church family. So uh, here's, here's the admonition this morning. We still are waiting uh, to hear from about 10 to 12 families, okay, not individuals, but 10 to 12 families. If you would just go online still, centennialchurch.com backslash 2017, uh, and let us know that you're going to participate. Some of you have not wanted to let us know uh, your pledge amount, and I understand that. Uh, that's fine. We're not going to come knock on your door. Um, that, you, hey, that's between me and the Lord. Uh, we will respect that, okay? Um, but we do ask that everyone participate. Uh, even if you don't want to tell us how you're going to participate in our budget, we, we ask that you participate. And, and I'm talking here to our church uh, members. So if those 10 or 12 of you, again, I don't know who, who that is. I don't know, and our elders don't know who gives what. That Only about two or three people know uh, who gives what around here. But I encourage you, if you have not yet responded, please do. Okay, those 10 or 12 uh, families, that's who I'm talking to. There, I can think of three reasons uh, why you would not have responded? Well, four, I guess maybe you you, you forgot. Might be number one. Uh, number two would be you just you're you're just ignorant that part of your responsibility as a church member is to participate in giving to the ministry here. So that would be one reason. Uh, the second reason would be you are just in over your heads, uh, and you can't. You are, you are in a bad place financially, and if that's the case. Um, uh, we, we need to help you. And thirdly, the only other reason I could think uh, that you would not be participating is just simply out of disobedience, <laughs> quite frankly. And for any of those three reasons, uh, we need to help you. 
Uh, so please respond. If you're in a, ba- a bad place, we want to help you. We want to pastor you and counsel you through that. Um, this is not something that we've come up with, but uh, this is what the Lord expects of his people. So that's a uh, quick, brief uh, admonition. Okay, good. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And the, the way I want to start as you're finding your way to Romans there is I'd love for you to uh, just turn to someone next to you and just share real quickly here, 10 seconds, just turn to someone next to you and share when was the last time you went to the doctor. Okay, just do that right now. When was the last time you went to the doctor? I didn't, I didn't say share what you went to the doctor for, okay? I said when the last time. Raise your hand if you were at the doctor within the last seven days. Wow, there's been a lot of flu going around, okay? Uh, raise your hand if you have not been to the doctor within the last year. Wow, the healthy folks or the stubborn folks among us. Here's, here's what I know, okay? I don't know why you would have gone to the doctor this last week or why you have been to the doctor in the last year, but here's what I do know. I do know, I think it's a fair guess to say, that you, the reason you went to the doctor was because you were sick, Okay, now some of us, now particularly our little ones, uh, we might go to the doctor for a wellness visit, as we do with our children, right? But for most of us, if we go to the doctor, it's because we're sick. And some of us, we get sick, and we still won't go to the doctor. But my guess is that most of us, if we went to the doctor, it was because we were sick. You won't go to the doctor unless you have a need. Jesus said this, he said, I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. I have not called the righteous, but sinners. And when Jesus says, I have not called the righteous, he's not, uh, he's not pretending that there are some people that are righteous. He's actually saying, I've not come to call those that think they're righteous, but I've actually called to, I've come to call those who know that they're sick, that they have an issue and that they need the doctor. So Jesus is very clear that he says, People that are sick need the great physician, and people that are sinners need the great savior. But if you don't know you're sick, you will not go to the doctor. And if you don't know that you are a sinner in need of God's help, you will not go to the savior. You have to be diagnosed to get the proper cure, right? Well, today in the passage that we look at, we are going to see that we're sinners, Uh, We're going to see that we're sick in need of the great physician, and we're also going to see that we're condemned in need of of pardon. That's what our passage brings us this morning, and it's actually bad news. In a book that's full of good news, verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, and actually on into chapters 2 and 3, we get some bad news. But that bad news actually shapes the way we receive the good news. It's the backdrop of which God's grace and the good news really shines forth in all of its beauty. Uh, this next weekend, we will, Elizabeth and I will celebrate 10 years together. Thank you. Amen. Uh, a bit, roughly, ten, yeah, we, we, we're really young. Uh, roughly 10 years ago, when I went to pick out that engagement ring and I went to the jewelry store, they, they brought out those rings, and what did they put them on? They put them on a black piece of velvet, this cloth, but they put that beauty in front of a a dark backdrop, that black velvet cloth. Why? So that I could see the, is it the five C's, right? Cut, 
color, carrot. Someone earlier with the teacher said cost. Yeah. Uh, but to see that beauty even, even more spectacularly than on someone's finger, but to see it against the backdrop of darkness, against the black. And that's what we have here in these verses and on in the verses even after it is that we see the backdrop of darkness, of, of sin and the, the incredible brokenness of our world. Against that backdrop, we see the beauty of what God has given to us in Christ. You don't appreciate the good news until you see all that's broken, until you hear the bad news. So that's where we're going this morning. Last week, uh, briefly here, I don't have time, based upon how this message went with the teachers earlier this morning, I don't have time to review everything this morning. But briefly, here's what we said last week in the first 17 verses. Point number one last week was the gospel is news. The gospel is news. It's not advice, but it's news. Secondly, we saw that the gospel is news that must be shared. News that must be shared. And thirdly, the gospel is news that transforms. And verses 16 and 17, which we read together earlier in the service, it says this. Verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We see in this verse that that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it has a power in it, and it reveals a righteousness from God. And therefore, it's powerful for salvation. And that salvation is for everyone. Uh, it's, it's for all. It's both universal as well as conditional. That call to salvation is universal because it's for everyone. It's the power of God for everyone, but it's conditional in the sense it's, that it's for those who believe, who those who, for those who come to faith in Christ. You have the power of God for salvation through the gospel. That's what we looked at last week. I also want to remind you that we have created a page on our website that has resources, and there's a lot of stuff that I'm not going to be able to get to that I want you to read and be exposed to. So I encourage you to go to that website, our website, backslash Romans. There's even a whole free seminary course recommended on there. If you want to learn about the Protestant Reformation in this, it's 500-year anniversary. Go on that resource page. I put some new things on there just this morning, okay? So be checking that out. We've also uh, on there have recommended recommended a study guide. If you want to use this in your community groups, it's by Tim Keller. If you want to use that for your own personal study or in your community groups, it's a great little study guide that will help you get even more out of our study here together uh, as we go through these months and these chapters, okay? But today, we come to a part of the Bible that if you're not a believer or if you're a skeptic or your friends or neighbors who may not be uh, Christians may not be believers in Christ. It, we come to a passage of Scripture that uh, the world looks at and says, if, if you believe that, you're crazy, or you're backwards, or you're regressive, or you're judgmental. It is not a politically correct piece of the Scripture, but we study through the Bible, and we don't get to skip the hard parts as we study through the Bible, we have to address them. So this morning we see this, the darkness of what has happened in our world. The passage that we are going to look at this morning talks about the wrath of God. It talks about sin. And it talks about us being condemned. And let me just say, right from the get-go, in, in our world today, 
the wrath of God, condemnation, and sin are not topics or not words that just sit well to the modern mind. Again, it's not politically correct, but it's here in the Bible, and we have to work with it, even though it's not uh, what our culture would immediately, or even ourselves would immediately embrace. These are not terms that sit well to modern minds. So modern writers have uh, rewritten that classic hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton. Our drummer is named John Newton, by the way, but he didn't write Amazing Grace. But uh, a couple centuries ago, John Newton wrote this classic Amazing Grace. In modern lyrics, it goes like this. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a stunted self-concept like me. I once was stressed out, but now am empowered. Was visually challenged, but now I see. See, that's grace in modern terms, not in ancient terms or not in biblical terms, but that's amazing grace in modern terms because we are not quick to accept, as the original song says, that we are wretched, that we are lost, and that we are not visually challenged, but in fact that we are blind. And that's what our passage says to us this morning. And just to summarize it real quick, if you watch the bottom line, if you're taking notes, here's the bottom line. Here's my big idea of the message this morning. The bottom line is this. We are more messed up than we think, and we are more loved than we realize. We are more messed up than we think. Paul's going to explain that to us, but we are more loved. That's the good news at the end than we realize. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and what I want to do this morning as we did last week, is I want to ask you to stand with me as I read this passage in honor and respect of God's word. Stand. You can look along on your device. It won't be on the screen or in an old-fashioned Bible with pages, Uh, but follow along with me. I'll read the passage, and then I'll pray for us as we look at it, okay? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this difficult part of your word, I pray that you would work in each heart here. Lord, each of us sinners in rebellion against you, including the one who prays to you right now. Father, please, uh, by your Holy Spirit, uh, use your word to change us, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us. It's because of the blood of Jesus we come to you. In his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. We're going to see uh, three main headings this morning. They go like this. Uh, Point number one, God's wrath. Point number two, man's rebellion. And thirdly, point number three, God's solution. Okay, first of all, we start with God's wrath. God's wrath, verse 18, it comes right after verse 17. Tricky, huh? Right after verse 17, it comes verse 18. And verse 17, he's been talking about, and 16, he's been talking about the power of God. And the righteousness of God. But in verse 18, he transitions to talk about the wrath of God. Again, not a popular topic. And something that's uh, often in in, uh, wider culture just immediately thrown out and rejected. The the logic here is actually uh, backwards. If you look on down in verses uh, 21 as well as uh, verse 23, it talks about the glory of God and not honoring God. So if you work backwards from verses 23 and following, you basically see a a backward progression like this. First, he he talks about the glory of God that we have rejected, which then brings the wrath of God because we have rejected God's glory. And then in the wrath of God, we find the righteousness of God. That's verse 17, where he gives us righteousness, and that righteousness is found in the power of God in the gospel. So that's kind of backwards from verses 32 uh, back to verses 16 and 17. So the good news, the power of God, and now the wrath of God. And we just need to say right at the beginning here, at the wrath of God, there, when we think about the wrath of God, uh, there are two faulty interpretations that we have to avoid in this. Faulty interpretation number one is just the, the idea that, hey, you know what, Paul, this is ancient literature, and uh, we've progressed since then. God, if, if, if there's really a God, he's loving, he doesn't have wrath, and so we can just kind of do away with that part of the Bible. Okay, that's just a common liberal objection. That's an antiquated, outda- outdated idea, God's wrath. That's one faulty way of thinking about God's wrath. There's another faulty way of thinking about God's wrath, and that is probably the temptation that some of us are prone to, and that is immediately equating the wrath of God with the wrath of humans or the wrath of your father. And it's kind of a capricious and malicious wrath, and he loses his temper, and all of a sudden he he just is angry, Uh, and it's highly emotional. That also is not the wrath of God that we're talking about. God's wrath is not equated with human wrath. Your father may have been wrathful, rageful, uh, capricious, and you didn't know when he was going to lose it, and you you felt his wrath in your home. That's not the way God's wrath is. God's wrath is, is not an emotional wrath. It's in line with his character. It's in line with his holy character. And it's not capricious. Uh, it's not malicious. But one author has defined God's wrath like this. He says, God's wrath, or wrath, is God's holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. 
his just judgment upon it, okay? For God to be holy and for, for God to really be good and even to be loving, he has to have wrath. He has to be against what is evil. Now, the common objection, again, today is that if there's a God, he's all loving, and a loving God wouldn't judge, and a loving God certainly wouldn't send people to hell or, or, or judge them eternally like that. And I just I want you to think about that common objection for longer than 15 seconds this morning, okay? Because if you just think about it in, in human terms, uh, not even uh, extrapolating it to God, but you can't have love, you can't have true love without also having wrath. You can't really love someone, you can't really honor something without a, a right possibility for wrath or justice. It's like this. If you really love your spouse, if you really love your children, and there is something that threatens your spouse or, or threatens the, 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 the health or the well-being of your children, then you are rightly wrathful or uh, liking to justice if something is going to hurt what you love, right? If someone breaks in my house and, and they're going to they're gonna hurt my wife, they're going to hurt my children, I'm not God and my wrath is not like, like his, but they're going to see the wrath of Ross, okay? It's going to come in the form of a Louisville slugger or my handgun if I can get to it fast enough, but they're going to meet the wrath. And it's not because I'm a wrathful person, it's because I love what is in danger and what has been attacked. And God, as a holy good God, is wrathful because anything that attacks his character, anything that goes after his glory, anything competes with his glory, anything that hurts the creation that he established and the people made in his image that he loves dearly, if something attacks them, if something is harmful to them, it draws out God's wrath. And we're going to see later in the passage, uh, actually in weeks to come, but in, in chapter 2, verse 5, you see that Paul talks about a, a day of wrath. Yeah, the day of wrath, 2-5. Uh, later in, uh, I think it's 2-9, it talks about wrath. There will be wrath and fury on the day of God's wrath. So the Bible talks about, and Paul's talking about here, a, a day of wrath. But right now, he's, he's talking in verse 18 about a present wrath. It's present tense. The wrath of God is revealed. Some translations say is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness. We've rejected God. Unrighteousness, we've lived unrightly, if you will, against what we know to be right. We've rejected God. But we have to have that right understanding of what wrath is. And you can't have love with also, without also having justice or a sense of, of God's wrath at wrongdoing. But it's not like the wrath of you and me. So right out of the box, verse 18, we have the wrath of God. And let me just say also to this, for, for, for those of you that may have, uh, have trouble with this, you're wrestling with this, or your friends are wrestling with this, I don't like this idea, and I don't like what he's going to say about sexuality in, in, a, in a few verses. I don't like it. I, I, I don't think that's right. Let me just challenge the basic idea of objecting to what the Bible says or objecting outright. Let me just say this. If, if you come to places in the Bible that you don't like, and you just kind of brush them aside and say, I don't think that's right. You are not allowing God to be God. If the only parts of the Bible that you agree with are the ones that you find desirous, you're not actually submitting to God. You are actually being God. And God is your servant. So if you have a God that never contradicts you, 
that never disagrees with you, then you don't actually have a God. You have a servant. And he is at your beck and call. He is coming to your wishes. So if you're going to have a real relationship with God, if you're going to have a real relationship with anybody, you have to be willing to subject yourself for them to contradict you and to say, hey, this is, this is not my desire. But if you just throw out the Bible or cut out any of the pieces of the Bible that you don't like just outright, as kind of first reaction, you're not letting God be God. It's a problem. God's wrath. Now we see that God's wrath here in this passage, verses 18 through 32, is a wrath that if I can say it this way, is, is not active, but is passive. We'll see that in a few minutes, that God is actually giving us over to what we want. It's not that in verses 18 through 32, he's, he's striking fire from heaven. He's basically just backing up and saying, okay, that's what you want, then, you, then I'll give it to you. It says he gives them up. He gave them over three times. But the wrath of God is something that we have to deal with biblically. It's something that we have to take seriously in the Bible. Secondly, God's wrath comes because of man's rebellion. Point two is man's rebellion. You see, as he explains it here, at the end of verse 18, uh, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19 and following. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But how does the progression start? How does man's rebellion start? It starts, I would say, in verse 18. And the word there you might, you might want to underline or circle is the word suppress. The way we rebel against God is by suppressing the truth. They in unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And the argument that Paul is making here as he goes on to explain it is, is man has rejected God not by ignorance. It's not that it's like, oh, there's really a God and I didn't know it. He's saying, no, they know that there's a God. They know it because of creation. Anyone in any part of the earth who has looked up into the sky, has seen creation, knows that there's a God and that he's powerful and that he's divine. He's not like them. They have a knowledge. But, but Paul says the rebellion of man starts by suppressing the truth, pushing it down. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of will. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to answer to a God. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And that's suppressing the truth. That's at the basis of man's rebellion. Not ignorance of the truth, but suppression of the truth. And we do it every day. You and I do. Anybody that smokes these days knows it's bad for their health. But they keep on doing it, don't they? But they know better. They know it's not good for them. All of us here know that we shouldn't, let me get off the smokers for a second. All of us know we shouldn't uh, text and drive, right? 
But guess what? I find that I do it every day. Quit looking at me with those judging eyes. You do it too. We know we're not supposed to text and drive, but we do it. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's, it's an issue of, uh, of will. We know we shouldn't have that, you know, sauce. We know we shouldn't have that second piece of cake. It's not, not but, but we want it. I know I need to get out and, and five times a week either run or ride my bike or something. I know that. The problem is I don't want to do it. So I suppress that. And that's what the argument Paul's making here is, is, is you know better. But you suppress the truth. And that suppression leads to an exchange. And this is where we see three times Paul uses these words, this word exchange. Look with me in verse 23. I think we have these on the screen. Verse 23, he says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They exchanged the glory of God for images, for false idols resembling birds and animals and creeping things. This God who deserves all honor, they, they, and you know about, oh yeah, that's those ancient people and they took wood and, and rocks and they carved out little idols of them. How foolish of them. How could they possibly worship something that they made with their own hands out of rock and wood and things like that? How stupid were those ancient people to do that? But what do we do? We take these created things like our home or our car or our boat or our clothes and we worship, we give honor, and we give first place to things that we've bought or borrowed to get. <laughs> we exchange the glory of God for images and, and things. Verse 25, he goes on. The second, uh, ep, the second use of the word exchange. Uh, uh, he says, they exchange the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Same kind of idea, but the exchange here is the exchange of truth for a lie. And this harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve had the truth, but they believed the lie. So we dishonor the glory of God, and we honor created things, and then past that, we ignore the truth of God, and instead, hold up a lie as the truth. What might that lie be? If I have status, if I have money, if I have success, then my life will mean something. And you believe that lie. I believe that lie. Or that lie that, that the stuff and, and, and status is what really matters. It's a lie, but we hold it up as the truth. They exchanged the truth, the glory of the immortal God for images, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things. And then verse 26, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And verse 27, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. So here we have the exchange of, of the truth for a lie, and here we have the exchange of natural relations for those contrary to nature. And this was relevant in the first century when Paul wrote it, and it's relevant in the 21st century today as we hear it. To exchange the natural for things contrary 
to nature. I think as we look at this passage, and it's the place in the New Testament that gives the most space to the issue of, of sexuality and homosexuality, I think as we come to this passage, it seems to me as a, as a pastor and just as someone reading the text plainly, it seems to me to be p- pretty clear that this is not God's desire, that this is in fact rebellion against God. There's been a lot of uh, interpretive gymnastics that has been done to try to minimize this or try to explain it away. One of the uh, objections or explanations that you'll commonly hear in, in this discussion is, well, Paul here in the first century was really, he was just referring to an abusive kind of relationship where masters would abuse uh, and use young boys and and teenagers. And so it wasn't the committed monogamous homosexual relationship that we know of today, but it was actually an abusive relationship where, uh, again, young boys were being taken advantage of. That doesn't seem to fit with what Paul is saying here as he explains this, where he says, men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That this is mutual, this is consensual. That it's not one person being taken advantage of, but this, it's mutual passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men. That, does, that explanation doesn't seem to do justice to what Paul is saying here. The other objection that we commonly hear is, well, uh, Paul in Paul's day, uh, there, there wasn't this idea of monogamy or uh, even someone who was, their orientation was homosexual. Well, if you look back, and I can give you some book recommendations on this, but if you look back at Plato and even Philo and people that predated Jesus in Greco-Roman culture, the idea of, of committed relationships or mutual homosexual relationships was known at that time. Paul, Paul did have knowledge of that in the Greco-Roman world. And here, he, he's not talking uh, about orientation. He's talking about practice. He's saying committing indecent acts uh, with one another. So I don't think that those explanations work. Here's what I need to say as we talk about this very delicate, um, difficult topic that most of us are dealing with, Uh, whether it's same-sex attraction that you struggle with or whether it's someone in your family or a neighbor or a coworker. Most of us are dealing with this and and there's a theology of it, but there's also a pastoral understanding. How do we deal with this uh, pastorally and as friends? Uh, to me, again, I say the, the, exp- the exposition of the passage, to me, seems pretty straightforward, what Paul is saying. The, dif- the, the difficulty becomes, how do I work this out uh, with those that I love? And I want to remind us of the ministry of Jesus As we come to this difficult passage, we need to be reminded that Jesus came and his ministry to self-righteous sinners as well as unrighteous sinners was, according to John 1.14, full of grace and truth. And folks, as we hold up the truth that is unpopular, that is politically incorrect, we hold that truth up with courage, but we also hold that truth up with compassion because these are people made in the image of God that God loves and that Jesus died for. And in a group this size, some of us have struggled with same-sex attraction. Some of us have not. And this, not everyone 
who practices this or struggles with this is marching in parades and holding up picket signs trying to celebrate it. Many are struggling deeply. What does this mean? Why do I have these feelings? And they need to be met with grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus, full of grace and truth. The easy option, and I've said this before, the easy option for us folks is to is just to adopt the Hollywood response, which is, hey, it's all good. Whatever you want. Multiple marriages, multiple partners, any orientation, it's all good. That's just the typical liberal response to this issue. The other typical and easy response is from Christians. And you might have the easy ones to name are Westboro Baptist Church up in Kansas, right? They're the ones that picket all the funerals and all this stuff and hold up the signs and say God hates fags and all these other offensive things. And let me tell you, for Hollywood as well as Westboro Baptist, those are easy options. It's easy to just say, hey, whatever, it's all good. That's easy. It takes no moral courage. It's also easy to just throw your hands up and say, to hell with all you people. The Bible says this, and you use the Bible as, as a club. Both of those are simplistic solutions. And Jesus goes for neither one of them. He says he comes full of grace and truth. And I believe this to be, the, be true. I also believe that the church has failed over and over again in the pastoral application of this and even with our own loved ones. Those are the easy options. The hard option is to handle this as Jesus did with grace and truth. And John chapter 8, as Jesus, as Jesus interacts with a sexual sinner, the woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Now, the liberals like to say, hey, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. They love that part. And the conservatives, the conservatives say, go and sin no more. But liberals and conservatives, he said both. He said, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Grace and truth. And this is the tightrope that we've got to walk in the 21st century that is not easy, that takes courage, that requires compassion. And, lest, and also, lest we fill up with self-righteous pride, stay tuned. The next sections of Romans deal with us. The next sections of Romans deal with self-righteousness. People that look down their nose at other sins that, they, that you think are worse. And let me remind you that verse 29 goes on to name some other sins. <laughs> Find yourself in, in this list. All manner of unrighteousness. Not just one manner of righteousness, unrighteousness, verse 29. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. Have you found yourself yet? And folks, these sins are in the same paragraph, in the same chapter as sexual sin. Adultery is sexual sin. Envy, right here with homosexuality. And I love that he just drops right in the middle of it, disobedient to parents. <laughs> because all are an example of rebellion against God. All are an example of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and, and, and worshiping creation instead of, the, of God. They're all examples of sin. He goes on, slanderers, haters of God. Oh, I skipped over one, gossips. Gossips. 
to speak ill, to spread rumors, to, to gossip, to even say, I have a prayer request about uh, another couple. They're really struggling in their marriage. And gossip is right in there with all these other sins. So lest we, those of us who may not struggle with this, may not hit close to home, lest we get self-righteous, stay tuned for chapter 2. Stay tuned for chapter 3, and he's going to end the whole thing by saying, guess what? Verse 20 of chapter 3, shut up. The word of God has just silenced us all because we're all guilty in various ways and different kinds, but we're all flat, laid out, exposed, and guilty. The question came up this week as we talked about this, began to prepare this, but uh, yeah, let's not, let's not uh, pound, let's not trounce, let's not uh, trample on homosexuality because all sins are, are sins, right? All sins are sins against God, all sins are equal, right? On our resource page, I wrote a brief little article, I posted it this morning, if you go to our resource page, you can read, are all sins equal? I think that's misleading, I don't think that's a good way to say that. Here's the summary. Are all sins equally uh, an offense against God? In penalty, yes. But in severity, no. There are distinctions within the Bible among sins. There are sins that God says is an abomination. So what's the difference? Why is the church always pick on homosexuality? Why why are you guys anti-gay? Why are you all continually talking about this issue? What's the difference between homosexuality and all these other sins? Aren't they all bad? Aren't they all bad? Yes, they're all bad. But here, let let me say, in the 21st century, here's what I think we need to say about this. And it goes right to verse 32. What's verse 32 say? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And here's what I need to be clear about. Here's a difference between homosexuality and these other sins. I see no one on a crusade out there to say, it's okay to be disobedient to your parents. It's okay to murder. It's okay to gossip. It's not that big of a deal. I don't see a campaign, I don't see a crusade to say, hey, that's okay. What I see is a campaign that, that does say, hey, this is normal. This is okay and this is acceptable. And based upon the word of God, I can't go there. I can't go there. That to me in modern America and Western America day is the difference. Nobody else is telling me to accept this sin or condone this sin. And based upon verse 32, I, I can't. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's not loving to condone something that's hurtful, that's distorted, that's harmful, that's against God's will. It's not love to do that. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Thirdly, God's solution, and I got a truck here. God's solution. We see God's solution also in this passage in his wrath. But as I said earlier, his wrath here is not active wrath, it's passive wrath. And the word repeated in terms of God's response and God's solution comes three times. It's this phrase, God gave them up. 
You see it in verse 24 as well as verse 26 and 28. Verse 24 says, God, get, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Three times, God gave them up. And what is, his, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God's wrath is seen by God letting you get away with what you want. God's wrath is letting you do what you want to do. He says, that's what you want, and I'll let you do it. Sometimes the worst thing you can get is what you so desperately want. God says, you want that? I'm going to let you have that. And that is my passive wrath in itself, just letting you get away, letting you think you get away with what you want and not what I want. So there's bad news, but there's also good news. And let me skip forward to the good news. Because we need to hear this, because we're all sinners. We're all sexual sinners. We're all relational sinners. We're all sinners. And no matter what kind of sin you may struggle with, no matter how heinous you think it is, no, how bad you think it is, the good news is that God doesn't just give us up to our sin, but God gave his son for our sin. He gives us up, but he gave his son up. And in Romans 3.21, he, he, he concludes this long diatribe of sin and says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. He not only gives, up, gives you up in your sin, gives you over your sin, but Jesus gave up himself for your sin. Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans eight thirty two, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. No matter how, no matter how dark, no matter how bleak, no matter how bad our sin is, God's grace is greater. And it's available to every sinner, no matter the kind, no matter the stripe. See, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ shows us our guilt and God's grace. It shows us the bad news and the good news. The guilt is we deserve death. The grace is Christ died for us. The cross shows us how bad our sin is. Your sin, my sin, is so bad that we couldn't fix it ourselves. Christmas, Jesus came to save us from our sins. We couldn't save ourselves from our sin, so Jesus came to save us from our sin. Our guilt, our sin is so bad, Jesus had to do it. But the cross also shows us how great his love is for us. That even though our sin required his blood, Jesus was glad to do it. That he died on the cross because, I lo because he loves us. The bad news is that we're so bad, Jesus had to come for us. The good news is that we're so loved, Jesus came for us. Will you pray with me?
This morning, as we close, I want you to know the grace of Jesus. And first of all, you have to know your guilt. You have to know your sin before you know the Savior. But I want you to walk out of here knowing that no matter what sin you have struggled with in the past, no matter what sin you you bring with you this morning, whether you're proud of it or where you're deep in guilt about it, that the blood of Jesus covers it. There's nothing so bad that the grace of God does not cover your sin and my sin. And that the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit can empower you to break the bonds of that sin and to leave that sin in the past and walk in the newness of life. Father God, if there are those here struggling this morning that need your grace afresh, I pray that they would find it plentiful, bountiful, overflowing. And Lord, that your grace would change our hearts to follow hard after you, to walk in the spirit and the newness of life. Father, Holy Holy Spirit, we pray, convict us of our sin, but Holy Spirit, convict us of your grace and change us by it. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray, amen.